We're turning tonight, if you have your Bible with you, to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. And we'd like to read at verse 17. 1 Kings 18, reading at verse 17. And it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send, and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal four hundred and fifty, and the prophets of the groves four hundred, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we look into his word. Father, we are thankful for the book that you've given us, inspired and preserved so that we could hold it in our hands, the very word of God. We pray that you'll help us as we consider it this evening, that your spirit would take the things of Christ and show them unto us. Teach us, Lord, what we need to understand to live for you in these last days. We thank you so much that we can depend upon your promise, that your spirit would be our guide and teacher, that he, would, that he would convict us of sin, of righteousness, and of the judgment that's shortly to come. And we reflect on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ could come at any moment. There's nothing left, nothing left that must be done or fulfilled. He could appear this evening. We pray, Father, that we might be ready, that you'll teach us how to live for you, so that we're not distracted from the truth, but that we're meditating in it every day, walking with you, communing with you, and allowing you to lead us into those open doors of witness, that we might speak the truth in love to those that we come in contact with. Help us, Father, to be prepared to serve you in the way that you intend. We ask that you'll bless each one that's come this way and speak to every heart. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue with our studies in 1 Kings 18 and the life of the prophet Elijah. And we see that the Lord sent Elijah to do a work for him. The Lord said, if we look back at verse 1 of chapter 18, the Lord said, go, show thyself unto Ahab. And we read in verse 2, and Elijah went. He went to do what God had given him to do. And this is important because the Lord had raised up a prophet to bring Israel back to himself. That's the Lord's whole purpose in this contest between the prophets of Baal and the Lord God. The Lord wanted to bring the people back to himself. That was his, that was his purpose. And the place that he wanted them to come was a place called Carmel, Mount Carmel. And Carmel means fruitful field or fruitful place. And it was a mountain range in Israel that was somewhat centrally located. It was near the coast, near present-day Haifa. And that mountain range extends in a southeasterly direction from the coast down into Israel. And it reaches a height of 1,500 feet at its highest peaks. And it's a, it's a major mountain range. On one side is the Valley of Jezreel on the northwest side. And on that side, uh, Carmel falls away in very steep cliffs. And there's no, there's no way to travel that way. But on the other side of Carmel, uh, on the, on the uh, southeast, Western side, it slopes away from its peaks 
kind of in gentle valleys that are very fertile. And that's where it gets its name, a fertile place. And it was a place where many crops could be grown easily and the, the soil was such and the, 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 the moisture and so forth was such that it was a very fertile part of the nation of Israel. And because of that, it became a place where the prophets of Baal erected their altars. It was a, it was a high place and God had told the nation not to worship in the high places but to worship at Jerusalem. But after Solomon's death and the, the splitting of the the nation of Israel into ten northern tribes and two southern tribes, the, uh, the, uh, the, the king of Israel, the kings of Israel, began to set up uh, false worship places and invite the people to those. And one of those, one of those major ones was on this mountain called Carmel. And so that's the place. And that's the place where God was calling the nation of Israel to come together. The, uh, the prophet Elijah said, Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So the priests were called to this place. These priests were funded by the government. And we have government-funded priests of false worship today. We might call them secular humanists. And those secular humanists are supported by the government and supported by the media and supported by the educational establishment. And they are the uh, priest of the modern-day religion of Baal. Baal means master or lord. And it was, a, it was a term used in general of any lord or master in the early days of Israel. But it came to be especially associated with those who worship this false deity. Baal was in charge of the weather, and that was something that was very important to those who farmed for a living, and that's what the people in Israel did. They raised animals and had farm, farms, and so they worshiped a God who would, they thought, would provide them with good weather and good crops and a good living, and so they were worshiping what made them a good living, and that's what's worshiped today. Education is worship because you're told if you get the right degrees and get the right training, you can make a good living, and you can have a blessing. And so that's worshipped in today's society. And the God of Israel and the God of the Bible is discounted. The God of the Bible is thought of as unnecessary because we have our worship, and our worship is the money and the education and the opportunities that we have to make a good life for ourselves. So it's not so much different than what was going on in Israel. We may not be bowing down to wooden idols and, and stone uh, uh, idols, but we definitely have our idols, and we do definitely bow down to them. We give them our attention. We give them our energy. We give them our resources. We give them every bit of our love and, and, uh, and devotion. And so when we read about these priests of Baal and these prophets of the groves, though they were the ones who uh, served the goddess Asherah, and uh, the aid at Jezebel's table they were provided for through the government of that day. We're, we're not reading about something that's totally unusual to our own day. And wh who was the prince over these, over these priests and people? It was the wicked king Ahab. If we look at 1 Kings chapter uh, 21 and verse 25 and 26, we read these words. If you want to turn there, you can look. 1 Kings 21. 
But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols, according to all things, as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. So God brought Israel into the land, and he gave them a victory over these Amorites, over these enemies of God who are worshiping these false gods. But as, as, as the time went by, Israel began to adopt the customs and, and practices of the worshipers of their day. And they took on these false idols, these false gods, as, as maybe this is something we've got to do because we live in this land and the, the gods of this land, are, you know, they may be powerful too. So, yes, we believe in the Lord, but we also are going to give some time and attention to these other gods and goddesses because they, they may control the local, the local area here. And so we want to make sure that they are, they are kept in, uh, in, good, in good state with us. And so Ahab was a wicked king, and he had a wicked wife, a lost wife, uh, a pagan wife. And she brought all of her Zidonian religion with her to the palace of Ahab. But Ahab can't, can't blame it all on his wife. Ahab sold himself, the Bible says. He sold himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord. He had a choice, as every one of us does. And he chose to go on the side of wrongdoing. He chose to go on the side of false worship. He chose to turn his back against the Lord and go in the way of the world. So wicked King Ahab was there at this meeting on Carmel, and the priests of the government-funded religion were there, and the people were there. It's amazing to think about the fact that it's only been 66 years, best I can understand, since Solomon's death. Only 66 years since Solomon's death, and this is going on in Israel. The, the prophets of God are being slain, and the false religion of the Amorites is being promoted uh, everywhere, openly. And this is only that short of time since Solomon died. But, but, but Solomon had a lot to do with this. Turn back to chapter 11 for just a moment. Look, look with me at 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 1. 1 Kings 11 and verse 1. We read this. But King Solomon loved many strange women. This was Solomon to whom God had given tremendous wisdom and tremendous riches and had blessed him as the king over his people because he followed in the early part of his life the ways of his father David and he had a heart for God. He said, Lord, I don't know how to go out or come in. And he trusted the Lord and the Lord blessed him mightily. And yet here he is toward the end of his life and we read that he loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come into you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. What a sad story that is. A man with tremendous wisdom who had, who had at, toward the end of his life, had veered away from the Lord, interested in his own personal pleasure, marrying these heathen women and bringing them into the, the palace. And, of course, all of that was in the view of the entire nation. All of that was in the view of the entire nation. And people are looking at those who are in leadership. They want to see how they act and what they do and what they allow and what they don't allow. 
And we have influence in the circle where God has placed us. We not, may not be a king over a nation, or even in the highest places of, of our government in this country, but we still have influence. Every one of us has a circle of influence in our home, among our friends, among those that we meet and deal with day by day. Even young people in the school have a circle of influence. People that are watching us to see what we do and how we live and what we allow and how we follow God. We claim to know Christ. Solomon was a saved man. He was a saved man. But this is where he ended up at the end of his life. And the whole nation could see it. They could see what he was doing. They could see what he was involved in. They could see how he was treating these women that he brought into his home, not only not only uh, to uh, have them as part of his household, but to do for them what we read here in verse um, 4. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. His heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. And went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. So not only did Solomon bring these women in, but he went after the gods that they served. And he built temples and he built high places for all these different deities so that the women that he brought in could promote their ungodly religion in the nation of Israel. So it, it, was, it was an awful thing to see, a very sad, a very sad time. And it's only 66 years after Solomon passed away that we're reading about this need to bring the whole nation to Mount Carmel. It's not very long, is it? It doesn't take long. When leadership veers away from the Lord, it doesn't take long for the rest of the church or the rest of the nation to follow that leadership and to go in the wrong way. Basically, one generation had gone by. Basically, one generation there. And yet, the whole nation was, was rife with this false worship. We also read about, the, the, uh, about this in, in 2 Kings chapter 17. I'll just read that verse to you. It's a commentary on the state of the people around this time. The Bible says in 2 Kings 17, 33, they feared the Lord. You know, they kept up their religion, their, their religion with, with God, the true God of Israel. And it says they served their own gods. They feared the Lord and they served their own gods. What a, what a testimony. After the manner of the nations whom they carried away, whom they carried away from thence. And so feared the Lord and served their own gods. But I, I dare say that that's the case in the lives of many people who name the name of Christ today. It could be that way even in your life and in my life. We fear the Lord, and yet we're serving our own gods. We're trying to mix it up. We're trying to have God's way and the world's way. We're trying to put the two together and try to get what we can get. We think we can get good from our religion, our, our worship of God, and yet get everything good we think we can manage to get from the world in its ways. <coughs> That's what was happening in Israel. Some of these people who were called to Carmel were saved people, no doubt. People who had trusted Christ, who believed in God. But they had allowed the ways of the world to come in, and they were, they were at least silent about it. 
whether they, whether, they, uh, whether they went along with it or not or participated or not, they were silent about it. And when they built a high place in their neighborhood, they didn't, they didn't do anything about it because that was you know, somebody else's responsibility. That was, that was being uh, funded by the government and approved by the palace. And so how could they do anything about it? And so they didn't speak up and they didn't speak out. But God had a prophet in this situation, in this place called Carmel, where the people and the priests and the wicked prince were gathered. God had a prophet there. He had a man who walked with God who would speak up for what was true and what was right. He wouldn't tiptoe around these prophets of Baal, even though they were in the vast majority. He would speak up and speak out for the truth. And this prophet was told to go, to go in chapter 18 and verse 1, to go and show yourself unto Ahab. And the Bible says he went. He went. He obeyed God's voice. He was walking with the Lord, and he had a relationship with God that was established in, in various ways that God had dealt with him before this point. He had confidence in the Lord enough to stand up and be counted for what was right. And so he told Ahab, isn't this interesting, that even though Ahab was the king, he had some fear, he had some reverence, some concern over what Elijah had to say. There had been three and a half years of drought, and the nation was suffering. They couldn't even find grass to feed the animals. That's how desperate it was becoming. And so Ahab knew Elijah has something to do with this because he said there's not going to be any rain unless I say so. For three, you know, until I say so, there won't be any rain. So on the one hand, Ahab wanted to kill Elijah, he wanted to get rid of him because he was a thorn in his side. But on the other hand, he feared him because if he got rid of him, maybe that would be the continuation of the drought and there wouldn't be any change. And so, so he was in a quandary. And so he listened to Elijah when Elijah said, go get the people and go get these false prophets and bring them to Mount Carmel. And he did. The Bible says he did. He gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And verse 21 says, and Elijah came unto all the people and said, now you've got to picture this. Here are thousands of people gathering on the hillsides of Mount Carmel. And here's Elijah, in the only man standing for the truth in the midst of that crowd. Again, I say they were probably saved people, and some, some of those thousands were saved, but, but they weren't on fire for God. They weren't living for the Lord. They weren't speaking out and doing what was right to stand for truth. And so here's Elijah, this one lone prophet, surrounded by thousands of people, hundreds of false prophets here, and he was willing to, to speak to the people exactly what the Lord wanted them to hear. That's amazing. And yet that's what God does in the heart. He gives us confidence to stand for him. Having done all to stand, as we read in the New Testament, we can stand up for God in the place where he's called us if we're walking with him. Now, if we don't read our Bible, if we don't meditate over what it says, if we don't pray, if we don't ask for the Lord's presence as we leave our house each day, we're not going to have that confidence. We'll be like the many in the crowd who know the Lord and know what's right, but just can't say anything, just can't speak up, just don't know what to say, just can't bring themselves to take a stand because we're not walking with God. We can be like that. And so here's this great crowd gathered around the prophet. And Elijah says to the people, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. We need to make a choice. He was charging the people with making a choice. But notice what they said. And the people answered him, not a word. 
Not a word. He makes an appeal to their conscience. He makes an appeal to them to think about what they are doing. Well, we already know what we're doing. We're serving the Lord, trying to do that, and we're also serving Baal, and it's all working okay for us, at least except for this drought about to kill us all. But we're going to continue on in the way we've chosen. And, and he says to them, you need to make a choice. If the Lord be God, then follow him. Do his will. Order your life by his word. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Did not speak up. Did not say anything, yes or no, no commitment. Then Elijah said unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. And he begins to lay out before them a contest between Baal and God. He said, let them, therefore, give us two bullocks. There's, there's hundreds of them. Let them give us two bullocks and let them choose one for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. Now the people speak up and say, and all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. So when he challenged them to think about what they were doing, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't answer a word on that. But when he laid out before them something that would appeal to their senses, here's a contest. Everybody loves a contest. We can see this something with our eyes that will help us to know whether Baal is God or the Lord is God. We, we love a contest. So let's have that contest. Something they could sense, something they could see with their eyes, something they could actually see then that was approved by them. They said it's well spoken. Let's have this contest then. Are you going to follow Baal? Or are you going to follow the Lord? They didn't say anything. But when it came to this contest, they were ready to see that. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first, for your many, and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given him, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. So here's for three hours, from, from about nine to about twelve, three hours, they are, they are chanting, they're dancing around this altar. The prophets of Baal are probably singing songs that praise Baal, and they're crying out to Baal to to deliver them, and to show himself strong on their behalf. And the Bible says there was, there was none. There was, there, was no, there was not any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. These were enthusiastic people. I mean, they believed in their false religion. And they were all for it. They were pushing it hard. And they were doing everything they could do and knew to do to see if they could get it to work the way, way they thought it should work. But there was no answer. This test that was proposed and endorsed by the people appeals to the senses of Israel. But notice the calm assurance in the mind of Elijah. He allows the wicked priest to go first. He gives them the choice of the which bullock they would like to use. He lets them perform all the ceremonies and all of the... All of the uh, uh, religion that they could come up with, he lets them go first. And there's something to learn from that, about that, and that is that the Lord works when evil has done its best. He works when evil has done its best. 
Sometimes we think we have to correct every little thing that we see that's wrong, but sometimes we need to let the devil do what he can do. Let him do what he can do and show the, 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 the foolishness of what he can do. And then the Lord will move when the time is right, as he did in this case, to bring forth the truth, to bring it forth in a powerful way that makes a difference. And so it's good to walk with the Lord, to have that calm assurance that you know what God wants. You know what he wants to happen in the situation. And you're trusting him to give you just the right word to say at just the right time. The Lord can do that. And he will do that. Elijah's not running around fretting over what might happen. He's not, he's not uh, you don't see him here worried about, well, I've got to get my bullock going while their bullock is going and see if we can get them both going at once. He didn't do any of that. He let them have full play and play out everything that they designed to do. And then God directs him to move. Notice what it says in verse 27. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud. For he is a God, either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. We might wonder why would he mock these people? Doesn't, doesn't he want them to understand that the Lord was to save them? And, and how this isn't very Christian, is it? Mocking them when they're doing their best at their religion. But the truth is the Lord is going to mock people. We read in Psalm, in the Psalms about that. In Psalm chapter 2, we read, Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And what's the Lord's reaction to this raging? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And this is what's going on here. The Lord is speaking through his prophet Elijah to mock and laugh at people who are trying to worship this false God who is no God and trying to turn that into something reliable, something worthwhile, trying to prove to people that they ought to follow the ways of Baal. And verse 28 says, they cried aloud now and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets, lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And these are serious people. These were serious people. They were willing to spill their own blood in devotion to their idols. But what's the difference between that and people who are willing to pour their life's energy, which, you know, the life of the flesh is in the blood. We don't cut ourselves. People generally don't cut themselves for the, the gods of this world today. But they do pour out their life. They pour out their energy. They pour out everything that they are in the direction of what they believe in. And it's so sad because there's no answer. And it came to pass when midday was passed, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto the people, Come near unto me. So they did their very best. They did their very best. And now for six hours, from nine in the morning until the time of the evening sacrifice, which is about three in the evening, for six solid hours, they pursued their religious chants and their religious dances, their religious songs and their religious activities and crying out, pouring their whole, their, their whole selves with fervency into their false worship. And that's going on today. We meet people who are like that all the time. And they don't want to hear about the Lord. They, don't want, they, they believe they already know what God is all about. And they think they have 
they think they have their life in hand and they're, they're pushing hard to, to, to carry out their will. We're trying to reach people like that. How do you reach them? Well, the Bible says here that Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. Come near unto me. Notice how Elijah's preparation for the sacrifice is much different than theirs. We read of their preparation in verse 26 that they took the bullock which was given them and dressed it. That's all they did. They took the bullock and dressed it. Not so with God's servant. He followed God's plan. He followed God's plan to defeat these councils, these prophets of Baal. Notice what he did. First he said, come near unto me. He wanted the people close so that they could see precisely what was going on. He wanted them to know exactly what God was going to do and how he was going to do it. And the Lord calls people to him today. We try to do that sometimes. We tell people, look, let's take a look at what the Bible says. You're calling them near and say, look at what the Bible says about this. Or maybe you're inviting them to church and saying, come with me and hear a sermon, a real sermon from the Bible. Um, Sometimes people say to me, you know, I, I used to go to church, but I don't go anymore because I don't get anything out of it. And usually I tell them very straightforwardly, I don't blame you. I don't blame you because most of the places you would go that call themselves churches are not preaching the Bible. You're not going to get anything there. And I don't blame you for not going there. But why don't you come down to Calvary Memorial Church in Southern Pines? Why don't you come and listen to a sermon or listen to one on sermon audio if you're not able to come personally? And see what you think because you'll find that there's Bible preaching there and it's worth hearing. So Elijah said, come near unto me. And all the people came near, and, he, and the first thing he did was repair the altar of the Lord that was broken down. So there had been an altar of the Lord there, but it had been torn down. It had been broken down because the altar of Baal was the prominent one on Mount Carmel, and that was the one that was getting the attention and the resources. But he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down, and look how he did it. He took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. What in the world? Twelve stones, one for each of the twelve tribes. But the tribes were not together anymore. There were ten in the north and two in the south. They were fighting all the time. They were not together as twelve tribes of Israel. And yet, you know, that's how God looked at them. The Lord looked at them as he originally looked at them. The twelve tribes that he called out from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those 12 tribes were thought of in God's mind as Israel. That's how he viewed them. Even though they were scattered, even though they were fractured, even though they didn't have that unity that God desired for them to have in service to him, he still thought of them that way. I'm so glad of that because that's how the Lord thinks of us. You know, he looks down on us and we look at our situation and our resources and our pitiful lives most of the time. And our, and our lack of faith in God and our, our sin, we look at that and we think, oh my, why, why would the Lord even bother with us? Why would he care about us? And yet the Lord's view of us is not that at all. He knows we are of more value than many sparrows to him, as jo- uh, Joseph prayed tonight. The Lord cares about his people, and he loves us, and he's designed to change us. If we're saved tonight, he's designed to change us to be like him, and we will be. We will be eventually just like him. And what a wonderful thing that is to know that the Lord looks at us that way. He doesn't see us 
in, the, in all the faults, the failures, and the, the problems that we have. He sees us as his children, and he loves us, and he's going to bring us through to be perfectly like he wants us to be. That's an amazing thing. So the Lord looked at Israel as the 12 tribes still, even though they were split up like this. And so he built these 12 stones in front of the people, and he built this altar unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And notice what he does with the, with the wood. He put the wood in order. We don't read about that in the prophets of Baal. It doesn't say they put the wood in order. They didn't follow God's order. They didn't set the sacrifice up exactly as God intended for it to be and outlined in the word of God. They didn't do any of that. They had their own plan. But the word of God is being followed here in this sacrifice. He put the wood in order. He cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. So he builds this, this altar of 12 stones. There was no divided nation in God's reckoning. And he put the wood in order, cut the bullock in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he even makes the, the, uh, the demonstration much more powerful. He, he says, get barrels of water, four barrels of water, and pour them on this sacrifice. What, what in the world is he doing that for? Because he wants Israel to see that there's no chance there's no chance that some stray spark or some uh, a little flame somewhere is going to set this thing off. It's going to be impossible, impossible for this offering to be, to be consumed in fire. It's going to be impossible because it's going to be so wet and soaked with water that it won't light. There's no way you can light it. And so they pour the barrels of water on there. And he says in verse 34, do it the second time. They did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant, that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. So Elijah not only prepared this sacrifice with these 12 barrels of water poured over it and all this wood soaking wet, and he, then he goes to the Lord in prayer. He goes to the Lord in prayer and he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That's because this is the covenant God, the God who made a covenant with Abraham and renewed it with Isaac and renewed it with Jacob. That's the covenant God, and that's who he's praying to. And he says, Lord, you have made a covenant with yourself to bless these people and make them your own. And I'm asking you, the covenant God, to do this. Let it be known this day that thou art God, that I am thy servant, and I have done all these things according to thy word. It's important to say here that this demonstration in front of the people is not God's plan in every circumstance, in every situation. The, 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 uh, the prophet Elijah was doing what the Lord told him to do. He was doing what God told him to do. Where do we find that today? Where do we find out what God wants us to do? It's in his word. And according to the word of God, that's how Elijah was operating. That's how we have to operate. So it's not enough to try to emulate what he did here and somehow make that 
a demonstration of God's power and call down fire from heaven on it in some physical way because that's not what the Lord has told us in his word to be doing in this age, this church age. But we still have, we still have the same God and the same God is still willing to demonstrate himself strong on behalf of his people and to show the lost world the lost people that we know, the people around us who are loving this world, that their, their religion is vain and that they need to come around to the Lord. He's still willing to do all of that, and he still does that. The, the, the prophet said, I have done all these things according to thy word. Hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and hast turned their heart back again. And then we see the results of this contest in verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. That's a powerful verse, isn't it? Powerful verse. And, and, and I think, as I think about that verse, I think about the fact that the same God who did this in Elijah's day is doing powerful things in this day too. He's doing powerful things in front of a lost world today. Well, fire of the Lord is something that's mentioned over and over again in Scripture. And we, we're not going to take time to go into it, but we could look at the burning bush, the pillar of fire that led the nation of Israel, the law that was given on Mount Sinai as the mountain was on fire, the altar of sacrifice in Leviticus where the, 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 the fire of God took up the sacrifice. We could read about the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, where the fire of God fell. We, we could look through all the Scripture we find over and over again the fire of God falls on the sacrifice. And the truth is that if that sacrifice was not there, if that sacrifice was not there, the fire of God would have fallen on the people of Israel and consumed every single one of them. The only way that could be delivered, the only way that could be spared, the only way that could be reconciled to God was for the fire to fall on that sacrifice. And the fire of God has fallen on God's sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world. The fire of God fell on him on the cross of Calvary. The fire of God consumed him, consumed him just like this fire, consumed everything in sight. It consumed him. But he was willing to do that for you and I, to suffer and die in our place, to be consumed by God's wrath as God turned his back on his own dear son during those hours of darkness. He, he was willing to do that so that he could turn to us then and invite us to be saved. Like Elijah, he could say to the people, come near, come near, come near. The fire has already fallen. It's already fallen on me. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to be lost. You don't have to go into eternal condemnation where the fire is never quenched. You don't have to do that. You can be saved if you're willing. What a wonderful thing it is to think about the Lord God and his sacrifice for us. And Elijah said unto them, verse 40, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. That's pretty serious action. But you know, the Lord is slaying, the Lord is slaying these priests of secular humanism today. He's causing his people to go out with the word that puts them to shame and causes them to see that their religion, their trust in themselves, and their worship of this world is nothing. It's nothing, and it's empty. That's what we're commanded to do, and that's what God does through us. When the fire of the, the Holy Spirit of God is on the believer, we can go out and be that kind of testimony. We're not putting people to death with a literal sword, 
but we're taking the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God and doing battle for the Lord by trying to help other people understand what the truth is. The people fell on their faces and confessed, the Lord, He is God. Take the prophets of Baal and bring them down to the brook Kishon. That's faithful Bible preaching and teaching, not only in the church house, but in the lives of every one of the Lord's people. Faithful Bible preaching and teaching as we go out to talk to other people about their need of the Lord. That slays the high priest of humanism. And let me mention briefly that there are three tests that are in this, in this um, contest on, on Mount Carmel. Three elements that will allow us to test any ministry. Whether it's this church ministry or the ministry of our own lives for the Lord or any other ministry. These three tests will, be, will tell the story. First of all, there has to be a focus on Christ's atoning death. If, if, there's, if, if, if the slain sacrifice is not there, then it's not the work of God. So does the work that we're involved in focus our attention? Does it draw our minds and hearts? Does it pull us to the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross? Does it do that? Is that what it's all about? Then it's a ministry that the Lord is doing. It's a ministry that he's involved in. If it doesn't do that, we need to get out of that church where we are. We need to get out of that place where we are and get into a church that has that focus. So many places are not preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not talking about the cross. And they're not bringing people to see the need to, to, to uh, die to self and receive the Savior. And so the slain sacrifice must be a part. Another thing that will always be a part of a ministry that God's involved in is effectual prayer. The apostle, I mean, the, uh, the prophet here prayed, prayed, and the Lord answered that prayer and set the fire. There will, be, uh, there will be effectual prayer, real answers to prayer. And that means a personal relationship with God. If the ministry that you're involved in, if the church you're sitting in is not, is not working in your thinking, a desire to be close to the Lord that drives you to the book and brings you to Him, then either you're, you, either you're fighting against God or you're in the wrong place. We need to have that. And if it's not there, if we're not walking with the Lord, if we're not communing with the Lord over his word and looking to him throughout the day for, for guidance in how to, how to reach people, if that's not a real thing, a real personal relationship with God, then we're in the wrong place. One way or the other, we need to get where there is effectual prayer in our lives. And the third thing that will always be part of a work that God is doing is the fire of God. You can have all this religious uh, setup and not have the fire of God. It's possible to have that. The, the, the lost uh, prophets of Baal, had, they had a sacrifice, and they had all their religious incantations and rituals. They didn't have the fire. But the fire of God falls on the lives of those who are surrendered to the Lord. The Lord said the Holy Spirit would be our teacher to lead us and guide us into all truth and to convict us of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. If we don't have that conviction in our hearts, we're listening to the wrong preaching or we're not listening to the right preaching, one or the other. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 through 14 says, tells us how, the, how the, uh, the Spirit of God teaches. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. Teaching us what? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. If the preaching you're sitting under is not leading you to live a sober, godly, righteous life, to put away sin and to search your life, or let, better yet, let the Lord search your life and put his finger on anything that's not according to his will, 
If it's not doing that, you're not in the right place. You need to be where that kind of preaching is going forth. Because the Lord's going to teach us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So this contest between the Lord and Baal was settled before all the people. And the Lord will do the very same thing, the very same thing for us as we go out ministering the truth to the people around us. God will move and his fire will fall. Not some kind of charismatic foolish fire, but the kind of real change in our life that's going to make us available to be a servant to someone else and actually help them, actually help them come closer to God, come closer to the Lord. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we thank you for this account that's recorded in your eternal word. What an amazing account it is, and it's astounding every time we read it to see what happened and what you did in response to the prayer of Elijah and the, and the obedience that he had to your will as you told him to go and show himself unto Ahab. We pray, Father, that you'll help us to understand that we can have that same kind of confidence going forward in our ministry. We can, we can do what you've called us to do if we're filled with your spirit and walking in your ways. Lord, give us the grace to see it and the courage to, to choose it the desire to pursue it, that we might have that relationship with you that will cause us to be ready, no matter where you call us to go or what you would have us say or do, that we would be willing to do it. We ask, Lord, that you'll build into our hearts an understanding of these things, that we might live for you in these last days. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.